There we go. Got the first one there. Now remember what the colors for the Ukrainian flag? The blue and the yellow? Blue is what? Sky above and the yellow, gold. For the wheat fields, field of harvest, again, one of the top producing grain countries in the world. The Soviet Union, they called Ukraine the breadbasket of the Soviet Union when they were part of that. Then I've read where they've been called the breadbasket of Europe. And I've even heard breadbasket of the world. And, of course, the harvest there has been greatly hindered because of the war. There's the capital city of Kiev. How old is that? About, any estimates, 1,800 to 2,000 years. So there's a saying, if you want to upset a Russian, you can remind them, Kiev is the mother of Moscow. All right, so Moscow started about 1,300. So Kiev's about five, 600 years older than Moscow, which is, of course, more than even, we've been a nation, a country. It's about 5 million people in the greater metropolitan area. And where the Lord allowed us to begin the Living Hope Baptist Church of Kiev. Now, when we were here with you last time, if you remember in the beginning of the war, uh, Russia had come down from uh, Belarus, and we'll show that on a map here in just a moment, and they had encircled Kiev. And it looked like at the beginning that Kiev was going to get taken. And we had uh, a number, we had two services on Sunday, we had an international service, we had a Ukrainian service. And uh, many, almost all the international people are gone. Uh, A good number of Ukrainians that fled the country. But we still had a group that was left in the church. And uh, we were trying to keep that going with videos and, and just kind of virtually the best we could during that time. But when I was back last year in June, the guy who's back there to you, his name is Dima. And uh, I, I, he was actually in Kamelinsky area, which is western Ukraine. And I invited him to come back. He had worked with us earlier in the early stages of the church plant. And I said, Dima, I think if we restarted services, I think we might see some visitors start to come. And we did that. And they outgrew, outgrew one place and another place. And now this is at a hotel that's there. And I would say 80, 85% of these, 90% of these that are coming, are coming from uh, Ukrainian Orthodox backgrounds. So what does the Orthodox Church teach? Well, you've got to earn your way to God by keeping traditions, by keeping the law, and so forth. Uh, they would speak about uh, icons, which icons, you know, they mediate between you and God. So the Catholic Church would have uh, one mediator, which would primarily be Mary, Well, in the uh, Orthodox Church, Mary would be one of many. There's many icons, many mediators, and they'll have icons in their home, and they'll pray to these icons. By the way, if you're a PC user, see, you're you're more secular than the the Mac users. They don't have icons, but you have icons on your PC. So you're not as spiritual, all right, guys? I'm teasing. but uh, we, we began services again, and we saw the Lord just doing something special with the numbers that were coming. And we have seen responses to the gospel, and we're looking forward to getting back uh, there in August and having a baptismal service. Uh, but these folks have come, and some have come very faithfully. I got a note from Dima uh, just here uh, a week or so ago. And uh, he said that one of the guys from the rehab center, there's a rehab center. They've started uh, some men that are coming from there. And one of them shared his testimony. He said it was very good. And then uh, there's just a work of God's grace. So we'd appreciate your prayers for Living Hope Baptist Church of Kiev and also for Dima, his wife Erica, their little girl Abigail. By the way, things are very difficult there. Uh, last month in, uh, in Kiev, I think like 20 out of the 30 days, something like that, they were hit with multiple missiles and drones every evening. 
One night, you know, Dima wrote me. It was 2, 3 in the morning, and he had been awakened. And that night, I think it was 28 missiles were shot by Russia at Kiev, just, just at Kiev. And uh, seven of those missiles were what are called hypersonic missiles, which according to Mr. Putin were unstoppable. Those are five times faster than the speed of sound. And uh, they had shot seven of those. Well, I'm grateful, praise the Lord, that I can report tonight all seven of those were taken out by air defense. And, uh, And so even when they're taken out, however, by air defense, those missiles are hit up in the air. There's big explosions. And then they fall to the ground on fire. So the debris has killed people before. They fall on buildings. They cause fires where they fall. Uh, And I think they they estimate somewhere around 80% of Ukraine's air defense takes out the missiles that are shot. But there's still about 20% they get through. The other night it was 40-something missiles that were shot at Kiev. Or drones that were shot at Kiev. So what the Russians try to do is just overwhelm the system hoping to get two or three or four that go through and that hit. Uh, so be in prayer for Dima, Erica. It's, I can't imagine having a little girl like Abigail. Can you imagine two in the morning, sirens are blasting, explosions, your apartment is shaking, and your little girls woke up crying. Now do you go to the bomb shelter? How long are you in the bomb shelter? You bring her back to bed. You know little children, it's all about having a schedule, right? And getting them to sleep. So very difficult times. For those, There's the main reason that we originally went to Ukraine. I became president of Slavic Baptist Institute in 2013. And uh, we were just able to hold a graduation service there. We had seven in person that graduated in May. And we had uh, two more that graduated virtually. We're getting ready, preparing to have our next session uh, in August. So it's kind of exciting that even during war, uh, we've been able to continue training. And even seeing new uh, uh, students that are coming that were even saved right around the beginning of the war. That's been fascinating to see. All right, here you see a map of Ukraine right before uh, the war started. When you began to see the troops from Russia, Russian troops amassing, especially on that eastern side. And you can see the border there that Ukraine shares with Russia. Uh, You can see Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Russia. And then you come all the way down to the Black Sea, and you see out there uh, Crimea. It says Russian occupied Crimea. What year did Russia occupy Crimea? Anybody know? That was about 2014. So really, the war with Russia has been going on since 2014. It just hit a whole other level of intensity February 24th of last year, when it, they invaded up there by Kharkiv, they came up, up north of Kiev there when they had entered into Belarus and they came down on top of Kiev and made things just really difficult and hard. You see pictures like this. If you were to remove the color, you would think you were looking at pictures from World War II. And really the devastation that you see is that overwhelming. I mean, sometimes your eyes just can't take in what you're actually seeing. Here's a maternity ward in Mariupol uh, that was hit by a Russian missile. You see the the woman there uh, in the cart. She did die, as did her baby a few days later. later. But schools have been hit. How many schools were hit, babe? 2,000? 2,000 schools, and I think 400 completely demolished. 
Uh, you saw, if you were following this at all, uh, yesterday or day before, there was just a restaurant that was hit and children were killed at that. There have been schools hit, there have been hospitals hit, there have been maternity wards hit, apartment buildings hit. In fact, uh, when we were there in Kiev, uh, it was a Sunday morning, I was in my office and I heard the explosions and uh, I looked out through my window up towards the center of the city. You could see the smoke coming up and just an apartment building uh, had been hit. So really, there's the eastern side of Ukraine is definitely the most dangerous, especially that southeastern portion uh, where the Dnieper River kind of turns and goes east or goes west a little bit down towards Odessa. That section south of the river right there going towards the Russian border and towards the Black Sea and Sea of Azos. That's the most intense part of the fighting right now. But anywhere can be hit at any time. I mean, just a few days ago, uh, or a week or two ago, Lviv was hit, which sits right next to the Polish border. So no place is completely safe. You see areas like this, where apartment buildings, where these apartment buildings would hold anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people. And look how many, all these apartment buildings, even the ones in the foreground and the back, I mean, they're gone. They're destroyed. And uh, the, the UN estimates that Ukraine has roughly 14 million displaced people. Now, I say 14 million, and I think sometimes the number goes over our head, but in our lifetime, you share with me a time when we've had so many displaced people at one time, and you're not going to find one in our lifetime in this room. Uh, It's really, truly amazing. And of that 14 million, a majority, about 8 million, have left the country. Majority of those would be women and children, but about 6 million remain in country, And those people are called internally displaced people. So you've got 6 million people still in the country looking for a place to stay, to live. Many churches in Ukraine have uh, churches like this size. You you would have maybe anywhere from 35 to 50 uh, refugees living in your church. Uh, They might not be even saved. They could be lost refugees is coming over from eastern Ukraine. They're bathing in your church. They're sleeping in Sunday school classrooms. They're eating uh, in your kitchen. So you can imagine uh, some of the weight that that carries. In our camp there in western Ukraine in Lutsk, I think we have somewhere right now around 40, uh, 45 refugees that are, that are staying there. There's just a mass number, and where, where do they go? We were with uh, on the near uh, northwest Kiev region where the Russians had come in early, and we did an evangelistic outreach there, and this lady... Uh, had was there and invited us to come to her home. She wanted to share with us her story. And uh, this is her home, uh, just completely dis- demolished. And part of her story was she had been outside when the, the missiles started flying. She saw one hit her nephew. She said he just disintegrated. And then I looked back towards our house and coming out of the house, out of the rubble, was her grandson and he was missing an arm. And uh, just stories that just go on of, of heartbreak. Uh, with children right now in Ukraine, try to imagine uh, the trauma that they have going on in their lives and things they're going to carry forward with them as they go into their teen years and adult years. And listen, can you imagine trying to carry the weight of some of that without Christ, right? It's impossible. They'll turn to drugs. They'll turn to alcohol. I mean, there'll be serious uh, issues within the really within in Ukraine caused by that, but we have seen children. Uh, we were in Izum five days after it was liberated. In fact, this is a picture of two of the kids there from that. They were under occupation for six months. 
Uh, the, again, when we preached here in Izum, we just came to the center of the city. The Baptist church in Izum had been hit by a missile. About half the community buildings just destroyed. The mayor estimated that there were still somewhere around 17,000 people that lived there. When we came there, they had no water, they had no gas, they had no electricity. Uh, and we just came to the center of town and, and we uh, began to preach the gospel and pass out New Testaments and aid. Uh, but think about these kids and what they went through during that time. As we pulled into Izum, to the right, there was a mass grave of uh, somewhere around 460 people, Ukrainians. Uh, about, I think, 40 or so of those were uh, Ukrainian soldiers, but the balance were civilians. Some had hands tied behind their backs. So what does that tell you? They were executed, right? Some had their fingernails missing. Uh, they had been tortured. Uh, and again, it's just uh, very traumatic. So imagine what children are going through. If you read about uh, Russian soldiers and women and children, uh, it is satanic and just sickening, all right? Uh, if you read about that at all, it's just very brutal. So the children have had a very difficult time. And pray for us. We're uh, helping to sponsor children that are coming from eastern Ukraine to the camp there in Lutsk. Uh, We estimate about 1,500 children that we'll have there this summer. Uh, When we go back in August, there's two weeks when our students from Slavic Baptist Institute will be serving in the camp, leading the camps. And we got children, again, coming from eastern Ukraine, from these previous areas of occupation and and, uh, where the war has been the most intense. And we just want to love them and share with them the gospel of Christ and the hope of Christ. So we would covet your prayers for that. Here you see a map of Ukraine. And uh, right there, it was right there. Right there is Lutsk. And that is the area where our uh, camp and where our uh, fund, uh, Compassion for Ukraine, Living Hope for Ukraine, is located. And from that area right there, we will distribute aid to our, to our churches. Right, for example, right here is a church in Poltava. So we might send a load of aid here to Poltava. Poltava will get it. They'll break it down into individual bags. And then they'll take it out to these areas right down in here, right on the edge of the war, uh, to people who are in the greatest need. But also as they take that aid out they take the gospel of Jesus Christ out. And it's been amazing to see how God is working. We've been to many areas here. Uh, We have some, you've probably heard of Kursan right there. Remember the dam that was taken out? And uh, we just had a driver there about a week ago. I think we have another group uh, preparing to go down into Kursan right now. Uh, We have uh, done a lot of work up in here, uh, up in this area, around Kharkov and so forth. But this whole area, a lot of this previously occupied Right now, the line is somewhere right in here, coming down like this. This is all Russian-occupied, and of course, Crimea right here. And this is where the most intense part of the fighting is right now. Uh, Here you see just some quick facts. Uh, Compassion for Ukraine. We've helped to distribute about 7.5 million pounds of aid. Uh, The UN estimates about 17.6 million Ukrainians in need of aid. I was talking with a pastor today in Ukraine, and he was sharing. He said, Brother Eric, I just I haven't been able to work. And you can imagine. Think about this now. The war has gone on for 16, 17 months, right? And uh, how do you work during such an economy? How do you support your family during such a period of time? 
and, uh, and I could sense. And we're going to be praying about something maybe we can do during this time of war. But 17.6 million in need of humanitarian assistance. You see that number, 6 million internally displaced from their homes, uh, 14 million overall. And then you see the recent report by the UN just saying the crisis in Ukraine is deteriorating at an alarming speed. Here you see one of the trucks and uh, that we were given to use. This would hold about five metric tons, about 11,000 pounds. And uh, we can still buy about uh, 11,000 pounds of aid in Ukraine. And by the way, we've had containers come in. Uh, We've had containers from, we have a secular charitable fund in Korea that has sent us multiple containers. I think the last two they sent were valued at about $88,000. And so we're able to receive those containers and send them out in the name of Christ. And so as we go out uh, and take the aid out, we might say something like this. We are here today uh, in the name of Christ. We bring you this aid. Christ cares about you. He loves you. He wants to help you in your time of need. But there's a greater need that Christ has met for you. And there's a greater cost that he has paid for you. And you just go right into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right now, Ukrainians are listening intently to that message. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But this load right here, $7,000, 11,000 pounds. This would feed about uh, 600 people for three weeks. Uh, And you can see here canned meat and some different grains, flour, and so forth. So non-perishables that that would go out. And uh, we distribute it. Here's some of our guys. Uh, All of these now, I think, are graduates, except the guy in the pink. Andrew, pray for him. He needs to get graduated. But he's he's been very faithful, serving very faithful right now. We've even had those uh, from the government. Interesting enough, this guy right here, uh, that is Nazar. And uh, he is an elected official. Uh, He's in the president's office. He has traveled with us. He's been in the president's office. He has traveled with us. He's heard me preach the gospel now four times. Last time I was over, I had lunch with him and uh, gave him a New Testament and had a direct uh, one-on-one opportunity to witness to him. And uh, he shared that... Of course, he grew up Orthodox, and his wife is very seriously Orthodox, and he uh, attends Orthodox Church. But he shared with me this. He said, you know, I went to my Orthodox priest, and I told him, I said, listen, these Baptists are out, and they are trying to help our people in time of need, and they're bringing them a message of hope, of encouragement. And then he said, what are you doing? You know, why are we not doing anything? Why are the Baptists doing everything? And I said, well, how did... He responded to that and he said, well, not too good. He wasn't too happy. But pray for Nazar, all right? And, uh, and these other men. Andrew there, the bald-headed, uh, he is a doctor, medical doctor, seated right next to me. He has a, a rehab center. He's invited us to come there in Kiev. We've been there multiple times. Been in a hospital to witness to wounded soldiers uh, through some of the connections that Andrew has. And Andrew's even visited our church multiple times in Kiev. So God is working in hearts and lives. And that's been fascinating to see. In our trips when we go over, we have just seen unprecedented opportunities to preach the gospel that were not there before the war. In this area right here, we're about 14 miles from the Russian border on the eastern side. Again, people will gather. I think many of them are fascinated that you're from the United States and how are you here and why are you here? And well, we have a message that we want to share with you today from God. And uh, you're just able to go right in and share the hope of the gospel. This was our last trip in. There was a thousand people at this meeting. 
Now, if you can imagine coming before a thousand people outdoor meeting and just being able to freely preach the gospel for about 25 minutes and share the hope of Christ. Now, you tell me where you have those kind of opportunities. You're going to struggle to find them. We didn't have them in Ukraine before the war. And I'm just sitting back and I'm just amazed at, at the things that, uh, that the Lord is doing. Uh, this was about eight miles from the Russian border. And this meeting, there was about 12 to 1,500 people. And from this meeting, they started a church. There's been a church plant that's been started. But again, where do you have these opportunities to share the gospel? This area on our last trip, this is about three miles from the Russian border. And the mayor met us and uh, she, she showed us around the area, told us what it was like that night when the Russians invaded and how she woke up and boy, what she's gone through and what they went through and just very sad. But you know what? The best we know, this was the first time the gospel was ever preached here publicly. And there's another area I can say that about that I was in back in the winter where I preached. And I think it was the first time the gospel had ever been preached there publicly. So you see the gospel. More people are coming. More people are listening. More people are hearing the gospel right now. Uh, You see churches being started. And you see the gospel going to places and areas where it was not preached before the war. Now, if you would have asked me when the war started, was this possible... I would have said, no, you're, it's absolutely not possible. How can there be any ministry during this time of war? But I'm just telling you what we have seen and what we're experiencing and just the goodness of God. In our last trip uh, there in May, April, May, yeah, it was April, May, when we were there, uh, we were down south uh, Kharkiv region by Izum, and we went over east towards the Russian border. We crossed over into an area called Donetsk region, which is still Ukraine. This was not too far uh, from where the fighting is. But listen, these people had just received electricity like within a week and a half from when we came here. They had been uh, occupied by Russia for multiple months. They still had no water. They still had uh, no gas. And again, you see the Orthodox Church in the background. Doors are shut and closed. But guess what? We have the opportunity to do. To come and preach the hope of Christ. If anything else, if Ukraine receives its freedom, I think the Orthodox Church has really hurt himself, hurt, hurt themselves during this time because they've been so quiet and because they have not been active. Some have said they're not active because they fear if Russia, you know, there was about, what, four or five years ago, the Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox Church had a split because of 2014 when the war started. Uh, and some fear that if, uh, if Russia was to win the war, then they will come back under the Russian patriarch who's out of Moscow. Have you seen this guy before? He goes out, he sprinkles missiles, he prays for them to kill Ukrainians. Uh, he's very, of course, pro-Russia. Uh, he speaks about Ukrainians as Nazis and so forth. Uh, so the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has hurt himself. If Ukraine ends up in charge of their own freedom... I think we will have really three, four years of just unprecedented opportunities to preach Christ. Because the country will be hurting and there are going to be people, again, struggling, carrying things forward. There will be a certain level of poverty. There will be many, many open doors. We see them now. I think we'll have them in the future. Right now you were speaking about the Bibles and I heard you say Ukrainian. And we have received uh, multiple shipments of, uh, I think, our 
Uh, we just had one that was around 60,000 uh, New Testaments. I think we're down to somewhere around 20, 25, 20,000, maybe a little bit less. I haven't checked with Sergey. But when we, we have another shipment right now that's coming over in a container. But when we pass out those New Testaments, uh, I mean, people just take them. We're, we're, you're not turned down. I mean, it's just amazing right now. Even when we're on the eastern side of Ukraine, where they, are, where they are ethnically Russian, they are taking Ukrainian, and they're asking you to preach to them in Ukrainian, and they're making pledges that they're going to learn uh, the Ukrainian language. That has been really amazing to see. So we, we praise God for that. This woman right here, we're in her area. Her name's Oksana. And uh, she, I want you to listen to what she said. She said, before the war, uh, I was an atheist, but now I find myself praying to God. Thank you for coming today. Please come back and tell us more. Uh, this group right here, the woman there in the blue, we had been on her street. And uh, we had preached on her street. And we had been there multiple times. And she came up afterwards and said she wanted to receive Christ. And she prayed right there on the street. Uh, to receive Christ in one of our street meetings. And then later that night, we were in a neighboring village in a Baptist church. We held an evangelistic meeting, and uh, she brought a group of ladies with her. These ladies had also uh, heard us uh, preach the gospel multiple times. But at the end of the service tonight, we gave an invitation for those who wanted to come to Christ. And uh, these women uh, came forward that evening. Now I want to ask you a question. These women before the war were Orthodox I'm sure the majority of them Orthodox. And, uh, and here they are coming to faith in Christ. Here's my question. If there was no war, would they have come by faith to Christ? So it's like the war is stripping away the false facade of religion because it offers no foundation, no rock on which to stand. And they are searching for something because they know that, that death is imminent. Right? They know it is certain. And they're... They're looking for an answer. And uh, what has been amazing is to see the decisions that are being made for Christ. Uh, Right here, this guy right here, his name is Vlad. He owned the trucking company that gave us the trucks. And uh, when we had a meeting uh, there, he himself not saved. We had one at the camp. He happened to be at the camp. We had it for the refugees. We preached the gospel that night. Vlad came down the aisle with tears flowing down his face to receive Christ. The next morning he told me, and I took this picture the next morning with him, he said, something has changed in my heart. And uh, God changed his life. Would Vlad have ever come to faith in Christ if there had not been a war? I don't think so. It makes me wonder if we don't need something like that in America. And I don't want to wish it on anybody because it is terrible. It is heartbreaking. I mean, when I have mothers come up and they're weeping because they've lost sons, one lady came up, I lost, my, well, lost one son, and my second son, I have not heard from him in six weeks. I don't know if he's dead or if the Russians have taken him prisoner. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Uh, but, but you know what? Through it all, we see God working, and we see the gospel of Jesus Christ marching forward. This was our last service there in Living Hope before we returned uh, on this leg of our trip. And uh, we, had, we had some ladies and, and others that, uh, I think were they all ladies that came forward that morning. But uh, there was a number that came forward that morning. And that morning I made it very clear. I said, look, if you're, if you're coming to uh, Christ for salvation, it means you're, what you're saying is, I'm putting my icons aside. I'm putting my tradition aside. I'm turning away from that wrong thinking and I'm turning to Christ. 
that he alone can forgive me of my sin, that he alone paid the price for my sin, and I'm calling on his name alone for my forgiveness and salvation. And, uh, and to see these ladies coming and others coming is just a miracle of, of God's grace. You did not see this before the war. I mean, you would see some coming, but you would not see the numbers that, that we're seeing right now. One of the thrills that I have right now, Julie and I got back in May, and we start traveling again, and we're just going to churches, uh, raising, raising funds. We are also presented before foundations and other groups. But I get pictures like this from our men in, in Ukraine, and to see the gospel to continue to go out, and the gospel to be, continue to be preached... Even when we're here, there's nothing greater than that for me to see the New Testaments and the literature going out uh, in Ukraine. It has been amazing to see. And listen, we have some true heroes of the faith uh, in Ukraine. There are men that are risking their lives to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pray for Ukraine and uh, pray just for God's continued work in Ukraine. We were down in a um, city near the Moldovan border. And they had, a, uh, they had a group of refugees from eastern Ukraine, and we went there to minister to them. Well, that evening, the church had a service, and at 6 p.m. that night, uh, the sirens started going off. And what do the sirens mean when they go off? It means uh, the possibility of impending missiles are coming your way. You need to take shelter. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, are they going to have the service tonight? Are they going to cancel the service tonight? I mean, what would you do if you had impending missiles coming in? Well, they hold the service that night. And uh, so I'm in the service. I'm up on the platform. It was fairly large church. They had a large choir singing. And I noticed that night, I thought, man, these people are really singing with emotion, with passion. I mean, I haven't been in a church hearing congregational songs with so much energy like I'm hearing tonight. Then later that night, a time of corporate prayer, and I thought, man, they are really praying together and uh, with just this great, you know, fervency, intensity. And, of course, the whole night I'm sitting there, and, and I'm thinking, there, listen, there's going to be one big kaboom, and we're all going to wake up in glory. And, uh, and then it dawns on me, well, that's why they're singing the way they are And while they're praying the way that they are, because they're living their life with a constant expectancy that at any moment of time we're going to be face to face with the Lord. And really that's what you're seeing right now in Ukraine, is that kind of heart among the believers that are there. We have a young lady in our ministry who plays the violin, and uh, she was back home in her city, which is on the western side of Ukraine, a city called Shipotivka, and uh, they had been bombed and hit, and I wrote her on a Monday how are you? How are things? Your family? You guys safe? And, and she wrote back. I want you to listen to what she said. She said, God is especially good to us. He never gets tired of protecting us. All we do is we sing, we pray, and we wait for his second coming. Do you see the heart? We're just trusting God. You can choose to live in fear or you can choose to live by faith and trust that God is in charge And that's what they're doing. I asked her later, I asked her, I said, have you ever been in a service when the sirens start going off, warning you of impending missiles? And if so, how does your pastor handle that? They don't teach this one in seminary classes, right? And, uh, and she said, oh, yeah, we've, we've been in service when missiles, when the sirens are going off. And I said, and how does your pastor handle it? She says, well, he stops the service. We pray and commit the service to God and commit ourselves to God. 
And then he continues with the service. And uh, it's, again, just been amazing to see the faith and what God has done and is doing in Ukrainian believers. So pray for our fund, Compassion for Ukraine. Uh, Thank you for your gift towards Compassion for Ukraine. And we've just seen the Lord uh, just providing in ways that are hard for me to describe. I'm, I'm not Franklin Graham, and this is not Samaritan's Purse. My primary thing of ministry is, is church planning and training and so forth. But we have just seen God doing some wonderful things and amazing things. And we would covet your prayers for God, just his continued provision as things continue to go on there. And uh, I thought I had one more, one more, I don't know, it skipped there on me. Uh, there was one more picture, and we'll just go ahead and turn that off, guys. But it was a picture of a girl on a bike, and she had returned to me uh, there. We had held an evangelistic meeting, and we had given out some aid. And she came back on her bike, and she had a bottle of milk. And in this bottle of milk, we'll try, is it there one more after that one? There, no, we'll show this one right here. But anyway, it was a little girl, came back, bottle of milk. And she said, uh, my mom wanted me to come back and give you this bottle of milk and thank you for coming today. And, you know, they had been under occupation of Russia. I'm sure that bottle of milk was very expensive to them. There it is right there, the picture. And, uh, but we are told over and over again by Ukrainians, lost Ukrainians, to tell America thank you for their giving, for their prayers. They are very appreciative. I've had Christians in Ukraine tell the churches in America, thank you for what they are doing and for their gifts. And uh, so listen, they are very grateful. We were in one area, this big, huge man, and uh, after the service, uh, we had, there was a community center and we preached the gospel there. Afterwards, we came out and he asked me, he said, listen, what do Americans really think about Ukraine? I said, well, the majority of Americans are very pro-Ukraine and they want you to have your freedom. And, you know, you see tears kind of welling up in their eyes. So they are they're very grateful, though they're going for it through a very difficult time. We covet your prayers for August for our ministry there and covet your prayers for our men and women that are faithfully serving there in Ukraine and uh, just for the glory of Christ to be filled in Ukraine and for God to be glorified through this time. Amen. Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John very quickly this evening. And we just have a a moment of time. But come over here with me, John chapter 4. And uh, we're going to look down uh, and just skip with me down to verse number 34. I really don't have time this evening to set this up. But in verse number 34, remember, Christ is here. He's met the woman at the well. The disciples have gone off to find food. They've come back to Christ, and they see him busy, and they're asking him if he wants to eat. And in verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Now, a couple of thoughts here, but, but one is you see a very... Radical faith, if you will, of Christ. A radical commitment to finish the will of the Father, right? And what, where is that going to take Christ? Where is it ultimately the will of the Father? Where is it going to lead Christ to? To the cross, to Golgotha, right? And he is going to die upon that cross. He takes that cup the night before and he drinks all of it, right? The cup of wrath, the cup of God's Judgment as he bears our sin and bears our judgment as he dies in our place that we may have peace with God. 
So we see this thought, and I'm sure the disciples thought, well, man, you need to eat. We've been traveling all day, walking all day by foot. We're all hungry. We're all tired. And you're talking about a work that is more important than our physical food. Yes, we're talking about a work because remember what Christ said, as the Father called me, so send I who? You. As the Father sent me, so send I you. So we have a mission. Look, if we look into the world today, uh, 8 billion people, you know, it's estimated only 30% of the world has heard a clear gospel presentation. 30%. But yet we were commanded by Christ to take the gospel to every nation and to every creature within every nation, right? Right? And we've only committed, completed 30% of the mission. Now listen, status quo of just continuing as things are, it's not working, folks. Status quo is not getting us there, is it? I mean, I don't think Christ would command us to do something if he's not expecting us to do it or enabling us to do it, right? I think if he is calling us to do something, he enables us to do it. But to accomplish it, it's going to take this kind of radical faith that is committed to complete that will. And we see this here of Christ in his statement, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. I think of that uh, 30% that have heard the gospel, uh, a gospel presentation, 70% have not. Of the 70% that have not, about 30% of that 70 live in areas like this one where they have the potential to hear, just they've never heard a clear gospel presentation. And you've got people right here in the greater Portland area, right? I know I pastored in Kansas City. I know I met people in Kansas City. I know I have a very good friend. He did not hear the gospel in Topeka, Kansas until he was 36 years old. All he had heard was the Catholic version his whole life until finally at the age of 36, after destroyed marriage and life, finally he got to hear the gospel for the very first time and he responded to it. So 30% live in an area with potential to hear, just haven't heard, but 40% are considered unreached with the gospel. What's that mean? They have no potential to hear. They're, they're going to go from cradle to the grave and they're never once going to hear the love of God or the forgiveness of God or the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that should just stir us inside to say, how can that be? How can Coca-Cola be known in 97% of the world today In 150 years, the Coca-Cola logo recognized in 97% of the world. We have a ministry in Laos, a Bible institute there. We've gone into Tajikistan and had ministry there. Do you know all these places I've gone? They have Coca-Cola. But they don't have the gospel. And the saddest part is the church of Jesus Christ is satisfied with it being that way. I like this saying, this generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of lost souls on earth. And folks, we have a responsibility. And if you're not watching, the the pieces on the chessboard right now are all moving into place. And our Lord is soon coming. Are we ready for him to return with only 30% of the mission completed? 
And I know it's easy for us to push it off onto others, uh, but let's think about tonight, what about my accountability to God? And am I doing what God has called me to do uh, within the scope of a local New Testament church? But am I doing my part in what God has called me to do to complete the mission? Because to complete it, it's going to take a radical faith of commitment like you see here by Christ. Refusing that which is comfortable, refusing that even that I naturally would desire after to say no to those things and yes to the will of God. But I'm just saying, if we want to reach this, uh, this commission, complete it, we're not going to do it as things have been. It's going to take this kind of radically committed faith. How about a radically committed faith to be willing to go if God so calls? I know God did not call me until I had finally broken and surrendered to him. Now, I'm not saying a man has to be completely surrendered to God before God can call him. But in my life, that's the way it was. And I wonder about all those wasted years I had before I finally fell before God and said, Okay, God, not my will be done, but let your will be done. Not what I desire, not what I want, but God, just let your will be done in my life. This life and the purpose of my life is your glory and your glory alone. And listen, I've pastored and and, and worked, and I just think the majority of our Christians and the majority of our churches are filled with people who I don't know that they've ever came to that place. Paul, do you remember when he writes uh, over there in uh, Philippians, he's, he's writing about Timothy and he says, I'm tim- sending Timothy to you. I have no man of like faith. Do you remember that passage? And then he makes this statement, for most, or for most are seeking their own, not the things of Christ. Who is he speaking about there? He's speaking about Christians. Most, I could have sent, this is why I'm sending you Timothy, most Christians are seeking their own. They're not truly seeking the things of Christ. I think it's similar to that today. I was faithful in church. I had been a deacon. I had been a youth pastor. I had worked in a bus ministry. We sang in the choir. I had surrendered to God with conditions. But that's no surrender at all, is it? You don't surrender to God with conditions. Is he a man that we should come into agreement? Or is he eternal God who knows all? I'm just sharing tonight, if we want to make a difference and we want to finish the mission, it's going to take a radically committed faith. And that begins by having a faith that's willing to go. Let me read you a quote here that I find just amazing. It was written here by Adoniram Judson, a letter that he wrote to his potential wife's father. So they weren't married yet, but he was wanting her hand in marriage. And he wrote this letter. And he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Now, I had three sons. I don't have, I didn't have a daughter But I don't know that I can imagine that statement if I had a daughter. To say, I'm going to give her your hand in marriage and you're telling me I will never see her again in this world. He goes on, whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. 
whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? And he goes on here, we won't take the time tonight, but... Can you imagine receiving that letter? And you know what? He's going to say, yes. I give her hand to you. And she goes with Adoniram and she will die on the mission field and be buried there. But do you think there are souls in glory that are rejoicing that she came? Do you think in eternity that she regrets that she went? Or do you think this father in any way right now in the presence of Christ is sorrowful that he sent his daughter to marry this missionary who took his daughter and grandchildren away and he never got to see them? Do you think he regrets it in any way right now in eternity? I remember reading of R.A. Torrey and I'm an R.A. Torrey fan and just God had used him in my life and Uh, I remember reading of him, his son received a call to go to China. And uh, Tori was in Los Angeles. He had started the Church of the Open Door there in Los Angeles. And uh, he had taken his son and his son's wife down to the, to the station. I can't remember if it was the dock or the bus station, but his son was going over to China as a missionary. And when he came home that night with his wife, he was laying in the bed next to his, his wife and he was weeping on his pillow. And his wife said, listen, uh, R.A., Reuben, you, you don't have to weep. I mean, our son's obeying Christ and, and uh, you know, he's doing the will of God. He said, I'm not weeping because I'm losing my son. I'm weeping because God gave his son for me and I'm able to give my son back to God. Oh, for parents like that today, right? It's a radically committed faith. A faith that's committed to go. If God calls us to stay, it's a faith that's committed to pray. For those of us called to stay, God doesn't call us all to go. He has a local ministry here for us to do. He has a part through the local church of still uh, uh, evangelizing our local area and having a part in sending our missionaries out where we send them out by financing them, by giving, and we send them out with our prayers. And I think one of the greatest needs and vacuums today in missions is the lack of prayer. Paul over there in Romans 15, he said, striving together with me in your prayers to God for me. That word striving, if you look it up in the Greek, that's talking about agonizing in prayer. And that word is written in a, it's a, it's a word that's used in Greek that describes a team effort. So my part, Paul is saying, is to go. I'm willing to go and I have gone. But your part while I'm gone is to labor in prayer, to agonize in prayer for the glory of Christ. Do you think your prayers can make a difference for your missionaries? Before the service, I walked over here to the board and I was looking at some of your missionaries all around the world. I'm just telling you, they're taking the gospel into areas, especially those guys in the 1040 window there in Southeast Asia. Very difficult and dark places where Satan has had a stronghold since the beginning of time, my friends. And your missionaries 
need your striving, agonizing prayers if souls are going to be reached for Christ. And your prayers can make a difference. Paul said, spoke about there to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians about them partnering or laboring with him in their prayers to God for him. Yes, it's a partnership of prayer. If God has not called you to go, you've surrendered to go, but he's calling you to stay. He still has a part here for missions. And it's a commitment to pray for those that God has called to go. And through your prayers, there will be open doors. There'll be a power to preach the gospel. There'll be souls that will be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your prayers are absolutely essential to your missionaries. And I want to encourage you, man, be committed to that. Pray for them. I know maybe you don't know all of them, or maybe you can't pray for all of them, but maybe you take a handful of them, or maybe there's one this year, you just make this is the missionary I'm going to pray for this year. But you begin to lift that family up in prayer. And by the way, pray for their protection. Uh, I, I know here just recently in Baghdad, there was an independent Baptist missionary here just a few months ago, shot in the car right next to his wife. I wonder if the churches that supported him were praying for his safety. You know what? When you take the gospel into certain areas of the world, let me tell you, you're not going to be real popular when you bring this message that what your forefathers have believed and your mother and grandmother believed, they were wrong. Jesus Christ is the only answer and you must turn to him and receive him. Well, that doesn't always make you popular. Right now, we have men in Ukraine uh, that are going into very dangerous areas with the gospel. We had a guy down in a few months ago. He was in Bakhmut, and uh, you could hear the missiles flying over his head. And I began to think about that. At that point, there was still about 5,000 people in Bakhmut. And I started thinking, uh, you know, his name is Kolya. And I started thinking, Kolya, I don't know if he should be there or not. I mean, he's got a church he pastors. He has a precious wife, two little kids. Should he really be risking his life to go there? I started thinking about it. What about if I was one of those 5,000? And here's Kolya. He's, he's going in to the, to the bomb shelter and he brings some aid. But more than that, he's bringing the gospel and he's preaching to them the gospel and he's singing with them and he's praying with them. And I thought, if I was one of those 5,000 and all I had ever heard was the Orthodox, another gospel, right? A gospel of works, lost gospel. If that's all I ever knew, would I want someone like Kolya? To risk his all to bring me that message of grace and hope? And the answer would be what? If it was you, what would you say? Boy, yes, I would want somebody to bring me that message. I would sure want to hear it. But you know, the sad truth is tonight, there are people all over this world. They need to hear this message. And my friends, if they're going to hear this message, it's going to require a radical faith, right? Not the status quo. A radical faith that is committed to finish the mission. And my friends, we must first lay ourselves down before the Lord and say, what part? And Lord, I don't care what part, but what heart part would you have me to play? I'm willing to go if you want me to go. If you're calling me to stay, I will pray. And Lord, if you're calling me to stay, I will give that others can go. But we just want your message, the message of hope, to be spread all over the world. Listen, I know this church is a special church, okay? You are blessed of the Lord. But can we do more for His glory? I think we can. And I want to encourage you in that tonight. Amen?
I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Father, we thank you for this evening and just for your goodness and grace. Lord, I thank you for this church and just for the blessing they've been to us. Lord, bless us. And uh, I just pray we'll have a radical faith that's just committed to you and to finishing the mission you've given us to do. Lord, may we come before you and our purpose to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, I, I pray that each of us would hear that for your glory and praise. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Man, if you could stand your feet tonight, the piano's going to play. And just have a minute or two to allow you to respond as God would have you to. Appreciate the, the challenge from God's Word. Appreciate the update. Uh, maybe God's tugging on someone's heart tonight. Uh, maybe you'd like to pray more. Maybe give. Maybe go. Uh, you do as God would have you do tonight as the piano plays uh, in this invitation time. Amen. Thank you for your faithfulness tonight. Appreciate you being here on a midweek service. Thank you, Blue Thomas. Appreciate that. And may you get by and say thank you to him or say, I just talked to him for a minute. They sure appreciate that. Grab a prayer card on your way out. Pray for him. If you'd like to be a part of that ministry and, and giving to help those in Ukraine, there's an opportunity for you to do that in the back of the prayer card. Or you can just put Ukraine on the uh, giving envelope online if you want to help in that ministry. We're sure thankful for them. And I hope you have a great night tonight. Be safe as you travel home. And we'll be back again on Saturday for Churchwide Outreach and then Sunday again. Uh, but the time I want you to slip out in the back there before we dismiss. And just have a great night. We sure do love you. Appreciate you. Uh, God bless you. You are dismissed. <music>